turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're in this sermon series started last week on the disciples' path, as Matt said earlier. And last week as we kicked this off, we focused on the idea of following Jesus is a process. It's a journey living for Jesus, and and it's a lifelong journey. And none of us have arrived. None of us are perfected. None of us are mature. We're all on different places on that journey, different levels of maturity in that process of spiritual growth, but we're all on the same discipleship path together. And to grow as Christians, we need God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people, the church. And together they help us become more like Jesus and less like the world as we deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow Him. And there are four essential ways in which we as a church say that that we can help one another to grow as Christians and to follow Jesus more closely down that path. We call it the disciples' path. It includes coming to Jesus in worship. It includes uh, growing in Christ-likeness in groups, serving in love for Jesus and others, serving out of how God has shaped each one of us, and going and telling others about Jesus, going and making disciples. We believe those four things are critical for us to be the kinds of Christians that God would have us to be. And today we're going to focus on the first one of those, and that is to come to Christ in worship. Sadly, uh, worship is one of the most fought over and misunderstood functions of the church today. You know, we, we've had, you know, not necessarily here, but in churches in general, we've had so-called worship wars, right, that have been fought over musical style and song selection and instruments and how you decorate the sanctuary, the color of the carpet, what should the preacher be wearing, uh, what time should services be. And sadly, churches have split and people have quit going to church over these kinds of issues. And I have to think that breaks God's heart. And it certainly hurts our witness. And it deeply misunderstands the nature and purpose of worship. Because worship isn't about what we like or don't like. It isn't about musical styles or instruments or technology. Worship is about one thing and one thing only, and that is magnifying the name of our great God. That's what worship is about. In his book, Worship Matters, Bob Coughlin defines Christian corporate worship like this to magnify the greatness of God and Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit by skillfully combining God's Word with music, and I would add to that other artistic expressions, thereby motivating the gathered church to proclaim the gospel, to cherish God's presence, and to live for God's glory. It's a pretty good definition. Worship is about magnifying God. It's about focusing on who He is and what He has done, specifically to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we do it in the power of God's Spirit and in accordance with God's Word. Worship is one of the primary reasons He created us. It's one of the main functions of a New Testament church. Worship, in fact, is central to our church's vision. In our vision statement, when we say that we are a church that's loving God, loving people, making disciples, that loving God includes worshiping Him. Worship is one of our discipleship measures of how we are becoming more like Jesus. It's authentic worship is one of our eight core values, and we see today that it is the preeminent point on our church's discipleship path. When we talk about coming to Christ in worship as a church, we include several things in that. One is corporate worship. 
but also important is private devotion time with God, private worship time with God, family devotion and worship time with our families at home. And we also include church membership in that, the importance of becoming committed to and joining a local New Testament church. But this morning, I want us to emphasize the first of those. And that is using Paul's words to the Colossian church to look at the importance of how we gather together as the body of Christ to worship Jesus. So let's look at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 15. Paul writes, And let the peace of Christ to which you are also called in one body rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for Your Word and for the honor and the privilege that we have as weak and frail and sinful and flawed as we are, Lord, that You allow us by Your grace to come into Your presence and to magnify Your name. Father, I pray that You would speak to us through Your Word by Your Holy Spirit. You would draw our hearts closer to You, Lord. Show us areas in which we need to rethink our attitudes and show us ways in which we need to conform more to the likeness of Jesus, God. We pray that Your Spirit be at work in each of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first of three things I want us to look about worship here and what Paul says is that worship is relational. If you look back at verse 16, Paul emphasizes relationships in worship. He says that we are called to one body. He means a local gathered congregation. He says that God's Word is to dwell among you. Notice he didn't say within you. If he had said within you, that would sort of have more of an individualistic emphasis. But he said that it must dwell among you meaning us as a gathered body of believers. He instructs us to teach and admonish one another. And that's why the element of our disciples' path about worship says, come to worship. Come to Christ in worship. It's about us coming together, gathering together to worship Him. Now, I could preach a whole sermon series just on this because we can be bad about neglecting our personal time with God. We can be very neglectful of family time with God. We can certainly become a little complacent about gathering together with the church. And for many, especially young Christians today, church membership just seems to be sort of an afterthought or a foreign idea. And we could talk all about the stats of how all of these things are declining in churches in North America today. But I think these issues all stem from a a, a failure to realize that worship is relational. It's relational. Yes, there's a vertical element, right? It's about our relationship with God, our communicating with God, but there's a horizontal element as well. We come together. We We are the members of the body of Christ. We are stones, each individually being built up into a spiritual house. We are members of one family. We are voices in one choir. And when we come together to worship God, we come to look into the face of Christ, to marvel at the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died and to sing of His goodness and grace. And such worship and adoration of God, I believe, will draw other people to Jesus. 
And it will draw other people to look at Jesus. And listen, we should never want people to, to give us attention in worship. It should never be about drawing attention to ourselves. We should always be shining that spotlight on Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. But we do tend to make worship about ourselves. Let's be honest. Right? It's very easy to make worship about me. We might come to church with an attitude that says, what am I going to get out of it today? What am I going to get out of worship? How am I going to be fed today? We want to feel certain emotions. We want to enjoy the music and the sermon. We want to feel intellectually stimulated. We want the air conditioning to be just right. We want to experience the warmth of Christian friendship, not the warmth of the sanctuary. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But when we leave a worship service, what do we often say? Didn't the choir sound good today? I loved that song. Wasn't the orchestra playing beautiful? I sure did enjoy that sermon. Right? I guess that remains to be seen. We say, I sure enjoyed worship today. Now, don't get me wrong. When we worship in spirit and in truth, it should be enjoyable for the people of God. And, and I hope and I pray that everything we do, we do with excellence and that God speaks through the sermon and through the music to touch hearts and change lives, certainly. But the purpose and goal of worship is not to make us feel or enjoy anything. Those are byproducts of worship that's done in excellence to the glory of God in spirit and in truth. Because Jesus said that's the kind of worship that pleases God. Pleases who? God. Our worship should never be designed to please ourselves or anyone else but God. That's who we're to please. Think about it this way. Imagine your son or daughter are getting married. Okay, You're planning a wedding. And you're going to feel certain emotions at your child's wedding. I've seen it. Not experienced that myself yet. But I've seen others experience it. You're going to certainly have times of joy... And you're going to experience love and, and you're going to rejoice and, and have a good time, but you're also going to probably feel a little bit of sadness. A little bit of nostalgia is going to be in there as well. And you certainly hope to get some things out of that wedding, namely a future son or daughter-in-law, and maybe down the road future grandchildren, certainly some good memories and some great photos. But who was the wedding about? Who was it for? You? No. It's for your child and their soon-to-be husband or wife. If you try to make the wedding about you and what you want and what you like, and and I have seen it happen before, nothing good comes of that. Tension, strife, resentment, nothing good. That reminds me of a story about a, a little girl who went to her first wedding ever. She was so excited. And she was sitting there next to her mom and just had all these questions about the wedding. And at one point she said, Mom, why is the bride wearing a white dress? And the mom thought about it for a minute. She said, well, honey, you know, white is the color of happiness and joy, and this is the happiest day of her life. And the mom thought, that was a pretty good answer. And the little girl kind of thought for a minute. She said, but then why is the groom wearing black? (laughs) It's a good question. (laughs) When we come to worship, we come to glorify and adore and praise God, right? For His glory, His goodness, His grace. We want to bless Him. We want Him to be happy with us and with the worship that we offer Him. And of course, we're going to benefit from that. 
Of course we're going to enjoy that. But when we make our benefit the point of worship, we miss out on the greatest benefits of all. It's like we're settling for party favors and punch when we could be deepening our relationship with our Creator and our Savior. It's about and for Him. Now, another thing about weddings, though, people like a crowd at their weddings, typically, right? I mean, I mean, you don't have to have anybody there, really, to get married. But you want to share that moment with your family and your friends that you love. And the same is true for worship. Whether here and now or in eternity, God means for us to worship Him together as a family. And listen, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be spending private worship time with Jesus. You're going to be a voice and a choir of millions. You're going to be worshiping and praising God together with people from all around the world and throughout history. So Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Listen, that's a command. That is God's expectation for His people. Now, it's easy, especially in this post-COVID world, it's easy to let this slide. Right? I can go back and watch the worship service later online. I can go back and listen to the sermon online. And if we're not careful, we can trick ourselves into thinking that that is enough, that that counts. Now, don't get me wrong. I am grateful that our worship service is online. I'm grateful that we've got people right now who legitimately can't be here who are able to join in and experience this service with us and feel that connection with their church family. I'm thankful for that. I know several people who who tell me, even just this past week, how much they appreciate being able to either listen on the radio or watch online when they're ill at home, when they're recovering from surgery, when they're, maybe they've got some long-term health issues that just prohibit them from being here. Or maybe it's because they've gone away on vacation with their family over the weekend. But when those people that, that are joining us right now on the radio or on worship, and, and they, they know, they've heard me say this, when they say, Pastor David, I get to see you every Sunday. I always tell them, but you know what? I don't get to see you. And what I mean by that is that while they may not miss out on us, we miss out on them. And not that that's their fault, but, you know, it it reminds me that we need each other. We need each other's voices. We need each other's prayers. We need each other's perspectives and testimonies. We need each other's involvement. We need to come together in worship. It's like several years ago, probably about ten years ago, I uh, brought some puzzle pieces, some jigsaw puzzle pieces, and I gave one out to everybody in here. Some of you may remember this. And I said, you all take that home, bring it back next week. So everybody brought it back the next week, and I put it together. And it was a, it was a puzzle of the Leonardo da Vinci Last Supper. And as I put it together, I glued it to a poster board, and I brought it in the next Sunday. And there was that beautiful painting with all kinds of holes in it, all kinds of missing pieces, including the face of Jesus. Now, what was funny is that these people brought puzzle pieces back the next week, and there was one puzzle piece in there that wasn't from that puzzle. <laughs> I, don't, I thought, that was really weird. I don't know how that happened, but I guess that's a, you know, they, they go to a church down the street, I guess. You know, they, they, they're from another box. But the illustration was that it takes all of us to present a complete picture of the body of Christ. You are vital. You are wanted. You are needed. And we love you and we care about you. Secondly, so worship is relational. Secondly, worship involves revelation and retelling. 
It involves revelation. We see that in verses 16 and 17. Paul tells us that we are to let the Word of Christ dwell rich among us, and we are in all wisdom teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with gratitude in our hearts that whatever we do in word or in deed, we're doing it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You may remember when Jesus spoke with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, uh, she kind of sort of changed the topic of conversation by asking a question about worship. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans have been arguing for decades and centuries about should they worship in Jerusalem on Mount Zion or should they worship in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. And look at what Jesus' response was in John 4. He said, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. An hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus points out two, two qualifications for true worship. It must be done in spirit and in truth. And listen, spirit-led worship will always be word-fed worship. The Spirit of God and the Word of God go hand in hand. They will never contradict one another. Now, back in the Old Testament, let's go back a few centuries, Nehemiah chapters 8 through 10 paint for us a beautiful picture of life-changing worship done in spirit and in truth. It's a revival on a national scale. Uh, and, and it wasn't an awesome worship band or a 100-member choir that stole the show. It was the reading of God's Word. Look at Nehemiah 8.8. 8. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. And the next two chapters go on to tell how the people were so grieved as they heard God's Word read. They were convicted about the disobedient lives they had been living. They've been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. They've recently returned to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the walls and the gates and they've neglected the Word of God and the worship of God for generations. And so they tore their clothes. They put ashes on their head in confession. And then Nehemiah and Ezra stopped them and said, no, 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 this is not a day for grieving. This is a day for rejoicing. This is a day to celebrate and to feast. And that's what they did. And for over a week, they came back day after day after day to hear further from the Word of God. And they responded in worship and prayer and repentance and confession and recommitting their lives to obey the Lord. See, when the Word of God is clearly explained and understood, God's people are radically transformed. That's what happens. Now, there are at least four ways that we use the Word of God in our worship service. And the first is that we read God's Word. Paul instructed Timothy. He said, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So in our worship service, we make sure to have the Scripture formally read, publicly read, because when we hear the Bible read, it reminds us of the great worth and value of the Bible. It's like a story of a, of a rare book collector who had a friend who told him that he had found this old dusty Bible. It's kind of fallen apart a little bit. It was in this dusty old box, and he said, I, just, I threw it away. He said, it, it, it said something about being printed by Guten somebody or other. And the book collector said, Gutenberg? He said, yeah, that's it. And he said, what have you done? Do you realize what you've done? You've just thrown away one of the first books ever printed. That book is... A, one went for auction for half a million dollars the other day. What have you done? 
And his friend said, well, I don't think that book would have been worth anything close to that because some guy named Martin Luther scribbled all in the margins. <laughs> Whether your Bible was printed by Gutenberg or not, whether your name's Martin Luther or not, the Word of God is priceless. Amen? It is a vast treasure. And when we reverently stand and enthusiastically read it in worship, you know what? It teaches our children to respect God's Word, to revere and treasure it. It shows those who are worshiping with us that we believe and value and seek to live by God's Word. So we read God's Word. Secondly, we proclaim God's Word. In the earliest description of the church, we see they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In addition to publicly reading Scripture, Paul told Timothy to preach and teach it as well. He goes on to 2 Timothy 4.2. He tells Timothy, preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So the preaching and teaching of God's Word clearly, so that people understand and respond, is a critical element of Christian worship. But proclaiming God's Word isn't just something I do. It's something we all do. We are all to be involved and invested in the proclaiming of God's Word. It's an interactive experience. You have a responsibility to pray for whoever is the one who's preaching, to prayerfully listen with an open heart, to read along in your own copy of God's Word, to take notes, and most importantly, to respond and obey to what God reveals to you. The proclaiming of God's Word is something we all participate in. Third, we pray God's Word. This is another element of worship that has to be Word-centered. And it's an example of using God's Word both to retell His revelation and also to respond. And we'll talk about response in a moment. But as we pray, I don't want you to think, I want to encourage you, please don't think that spontaneous, off-the-cuff prayers are somehow more spiritual or authentic or, or heartfelt because we know they can also be rote and meaningless. In fact, the little church I grew up in, there were about five or six men that the preacher would call on every Sunday, one of them to pray, either the offering or at the end of the service. And it got to where I could pretty much say with those men exactly what they were going to pray. Because it was rote for them. And those same men would have said that if you used a written prayer, well, that's what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for, being idle babbling and vain repetition. But if we're honest, unprepared prayers can often be more rote or repetitive than a prepared one might be. Listen, yes, there are times where you're going to be spontaneously asked to pray in public. But when you are planning to pray in public and in a worship service, I think we should prepare our hearts and minds for that sacred responsibility as much as you expect the choir to prepare or the preacher to prepare. I think you should prepare. Whether you write that down or not is up to you, whatever is helpful to you. I think the best prepared prayers are the ones that are going to be based on the Word of God. When we incorporate Scripture into our prayers, it will be more authentic. It will be more intentional. It will be more biblical when we base our prayers on God's Word. And I think we need to do that. We need to make more use of Scripture in our prayer lives, whether that's at your bedside, your kitchen table, or the pulpit. We pray God's Word. And fourth, we sing God's Word. Now, again, worship, uh, music and worship, is usually we think of that as a response to God, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but... It can be a way of proclaiming God's Word. Many of our hymns and the songs the choir sings and some of the other worship songs, they're basically Scripture set to music. Or they're closely conveying biblical truth and Christian doctrine. 
And for that reason, and I know this is true of man, we have to be very careful to examine the lyrics of the songs that we use in worship. We need to really think about what those words say because it doesn't matter how beautifully moving a song is musically if it isn't biblically sound with theologically clear truth. In other words, the bottom line is that lyrics matter more than music and truth transcends tunes. We should be singing God's Word. So, worship is relational. Worship is about God revealing to us and and us retelling that to one another and to a watching world. But third and finally, worship is a response. It's a response. And we often respond in, in worship through music because music is powerful, right? I mean, it taps into our emotions it can reinforce our memory, motivate our wills. It, it, can, it can make us, it can stir powerful emotions in us. It can motivate us to cheer for our team. It can stir in us feelings of patriotism. It can bring back memories of nostalgia. And, and that's not a bad thing. That's how God has designed music to work in our lives. But the question for us is how should music work in worship? How should we use music in worship? I read about a woman, and this story is supposed to be a true story. She bought her daughter a baby grand piano, wanted her to learn how to play the piano. And after several months passed, a friend of hers came over and asked about her daughter, and how was it going? How were the piano lessons going? And the woman said, well, I've kind of encouraged her to switch to a clarinet. And she said, why? Well, when she plays the clarinet, she can't sing. So, Ben, we're glad you play the trombone, and that that's the talent that you express, right? Listen, God enjoys it whenever we make a joyful noise to Him, whether that's with an instrument or with our voices. Amen? I mean, it's all music to God's ear, whatever His children do. When we bring our musical talents, gifts, even if we think we can't carry a tune in a bucket, maybe we can at least just carry the bucket and we can make a joyful noise to the Lord. Psalm 147, 6-7 says, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a song of praise. Over 250 times in the Bible, we are commanded to sing to God. The obvious question is, why? Why does God want us to sing to Him? How does it help us connect with God and magnify His greatness and spirit and truth? What is it about music that lends itself to a worshipful response to God? A few thoughts on that. One is that music expresses God-glorifying emotions. Now, I'm not talking about pursuing feelings and an end to themselves, right? When we make worship, again, all about us or all about how we feel, we're really more interested in entertainment than we are seeking God's presence. So we don't come to worship seeking and and, and trying to generate some kind of emotional response. But vibrant music can help us respond with our mind, with our emotions to who God is and what He has done for us. And I think one reason that singing is so powerful is it's a full-body experience. When you sing, you're using your lungs, you're, you're using that diaphragm muscle, you're using your vocal cords, you're using your mouth, your ears, your eyes, your hands. It's a full-body experience. So when we worship through music, it's like we're all in. We're fully engaged in worshiping God. And are we not commanded to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? I think our emotions are included in that. And music can help us express those. Secondly, music helps us reflect God's image. Of course, we all know God created music, but did you know that God sings? 
In Zephaniah 3.17, it tells us that God takes great delight in you. He will quiet you in His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Matthew 26.30 tells us that Jesus sang with the disciples after the Last Supper. And Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit inspires within us songs of thanksgiving and praise. He says in Ephesians 5, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, God the Father sings, God the Son sings, God the Spirit sings. Why can't you sing? We should be singing. And it shouldn't depend on how you feel. We're commanded and we are designed to sing. It's built into the fiber of our being because we are made in the image of a God who sings. And when we sing, we further reflect His image. Third, music helps us remember God's Word. You guys all know that music can be a great memory device, right? I mean, when we teach kids the alphabet, we teach it to a tune, right? And you can't, it's hard to even say the letters of the alphabet without that tune in your head, isn't it? We remember commercial jingles from 30 years ago. We remember school fight songs. We remember songs we learned in vacation Bible school when we were five. Music is a powerful memory tool. And God commanded Moses in Deuteronomy 31, He said, Now write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it. Why? So that it may be a witness for me. And you read on in chapter 32, that song about God's story from creation through the Exodus meant to remind His people about who God is and what He had done for them. Music is a powerful memory device that helps us remember God's Word. You may not be able to remember a particular Bible verse, but maybe you can remember the verse from a hymn and share that with somebody. And finally, music helps us express unity and love. You know, the overwhelming majority of references to singing in the Bible are us singing together. It's about people singing as a group. That's what we read in Ephesians and Colossians, right? We are to speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and gratitude. And in those two verses, Paul mentions a variety of different kinds of songs. In the book of Psalms, we read about a huge variety of instruments and styles and tunes. And the Bible describes dancing, shouting, and even clapping as acts of worship. Our God is a God who loves variety, right? I mean, He's put so much diversity into His universe. So, kind of as Ben was illustrating with his children's sermon, why would God not want us to use a variety of worship styles, a diversity of songs and instruments? Because not only does that diversity glorify God, it edifies the church. It communicates a witness to a watching world because we are a body of many parts, each with our own styles, each with our own preferences. The church should celebrate multi-generational, multicultural worship as a picture of heaven where we will worship with every tribe, tongue, and nation. Listen, when we get to heaven, I don't think God's going to pull out you know, the 1976 Baptist hymnal and give it to everybody. You know, you think those people that worship Him in Zimbabwe are going to want to sing the music that we sing? They've got their own worship songs, their own styles and instruments that they're going to want to sing in heaven. You think about the early church 2,000 years ago. Listen, Amazing Grace wasn't written yet, y'all. 
We're going to sing songs that they sung. We're going to spend eternity learning a variety of songs and, 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 and instruments and styles in heaven. As we were singing Here I Am to Worship earlier, I noticed at the bottom of the screen that it was written in 2000. And I had the very disturbing thought that for kids today, uh, that song was written, that's like when I was their age, singing songs written in the 60s. So that ain't a new song, y'all. <laughs> song's been around a long time now. Listen, we should use different styles of music. We should use a variety of instruments so that every generation can worship God together. And yes, that means that there might be instruments or songs or styles that don't fit my preference. We sometimes sing songs here I don't care for. And you know what? That's okay. Because it teaches me to set aside my preference for the sake of others. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2.4. He says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, think about the early church. Think about how diverse they were. You had Jews and Gentiles. You had people speaking a, a variety of languages and dialects from a, a host of different religious and cultural backgrounds. So when Paul says in Ephesians for the church to sing together in praise and thanksgiving, that was not a simple thing. That was challenging. But I believe that believers singing together is an undeniable expression of our unity and love, and it's worth rising to the challenge to do it. I think it's a shame that the subject of church music has caused so much animosity within churches. You know, I think it must please the devil an awful lot to take something like worshiping God through music and to use it to tear churches apart. He must really love that. No matter the style of music, what's important is that we make good use of music in worship in spirit and in truth to the glory of God. And I believe that a special depth of Christian unity is achieved when we do something as simple as sing together and celebrate other people's musical styles and preferences rather than resenting them or resisting them. If you're singing a song you just don't like, just consider that your sacrifice of praise because it, it, it means something to somebody sitting near you. No matter our differences in how we prefer to worship, you know what, we have so much more in common, don't we? We all come together from the week with our own baggage, with our own hurts, with our own guilt and grief and sin. We all come to Jesus in need of confession and repentance. We all come together to worship and praise the same God and give Him thanks for the same grace, mercy, and love. Amen? We all come needing to confess and repent, needing to cry out to Him in desperation, needing to celebrate Him and give Him thanks. So let's come together around His throne to crown Him with praise, to worship the Lamb who was sacrificed, to remind ourselves of the gospel of Christ in whom we live and move and have our being, and to show a watching world what true Christian unity and love looks like. Listen, before we make a difference out there to the world, we've got to be able to worship together in here as brothers and sisters in Jesus. So the challenge for us this morning is simple. I invite you to examine your heart toward God. Examine your heart toward God. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you actually know the God that we come here together to worship every Sunday? You can't worship a God you don't know. You can't express love to a God that you've not given your life to. Maybe this morning you need to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. Confess Him as your Lord and Savior. That's the first and greatest 
act of worship. He doesn't want you to give a sacrifice. He doesn't want you to sacrifice an animal or even put money in an offering plate. He wants you to give your heart to Him. That's the sacrifice of worship that He wants from you. And maybe you need to do that today. But as a Christian, maybe you need to examine your attitude toward worship. Your attitude toward your fellow Christians who may worship just a little bit differently than you do. Maybe this morning God is calling you to come unite with this church, to become a member of this church, to commit yourself to worshiping and growing and serving and going and telling others here. Maybe you need to commit yourself to being more faithful in corporate worship or more faithful in your private devotions or in a regular time of worship with your family at home. Whatever it is, you've heard God's Word this morning. And now it's time for us to respond. We're going to respond in song. We're going to respond in prayer. We're going to respond through giving our tithes and offerings. And most importantly, let's respond through obedience. Whether that's to come down this aisle and make a public decision to pray at this altar or to go out these doors and do something different because you are here today. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we are so thankful that You inhabit Your people's praise, that You want us to gather together in Your presence, that, that our worship of You brings joy to Your heart, that You delight in this, and that You sing over us with delight. God, we love You. We thank You for what Jesus has made possible for us to have this relationship with You. God, forgive us when we get our priorities out of place. Forgive us when we become a little too me-centered and not enough Jesus-centered in this time on Sunday mornings. Forgive us when we, maybe in our pride or in, a, in some misplaced sense of humility, don't want to participate. We don't want to read Scripture publicly or pray or be in the choir or sing from the pew. God, help us to look beyond ourselves and remember it's all about You. May we give You the worship and praise that You deserve. And may we be obedient to what your Spirit has spoken to each of our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, one thing I love about this church is that we are a multi-general congregation, multi-generational congregation. We are all here together from the smallest child to the oldest senior adult worshiping Him together in a variety of styles. I, I, I never want us to think that we've got to somehow split into two congregations to worship. No, I want us to worship together with one voice. Whether we're singing a song from the 21st century, the 20th century, or the 19th century, they all have value. And, and, and some people can be just as bad at looking down on an older song as other people might think looking at a younger song. Again, what matters is are you singing it from your heart and are the words true? That's really all that matters. And I'm so thankful that this is a church that gets that. Uh, and I, I, I'm so just grateful for that. Uh, may we always get that and have that attitude and that heart. Uh, so as we go this week, worship doesn't end right now. Worship end doesn't end here. In fact, you can think of this as just sort of your, your warm-up, your preparation together. We're about to go out. This is the huddle. We're about to go out and hit the field. The real worship begins as we walk out this door. How are you going to worship God this week? Through your private time with Him, with your family, through how you are living for Him and serving Him every day. What Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it with thanksgiving toward God the Father through Him.